Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. From KQED. Good morning. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. We begin with a demographic line being crossed in the University of California system. For the first time in its history, Latinos are the largest group of prospective first-year students admitted into UC schools. Latinos make up 36% of the students offered admission, followed by Asian Americans at 35%, whites at 21% and black students at 5%. Out of the nine campuses with undergrad students, UC Berkeley has the most diverse entering class with more than 40% increases in both Latino and black students over last year. The numbers come as Californians will vote on a ballot initiative in November over whether to affirm or repeal a ban on affirmative action passed by state voters in 1996. That ban also covers the UC system. In other news, state fire investigators have ruled that last fall's Kincaid fire in Sonoma County was caused by power lines belonging to Pacific Gas and Electric. The California Report's Lily Jamali has more. Cal Fire says the Kincaid fire was sparked by PG&E transmission lines northeast of the wine country town of Geyserville. It started in October, even as PG&E had controversially shut off power to portions of its vast territory to prevent such a blaze. The Kincaid fire burned almost 78,000 acres and nearly 400 structures. Steve Weissman of UC Berkeley's Goldman School of Public Policy says Cal Fire's findings are part of a pattern. Now for the third year in a row, uh, PG&E uh, has been found to have its equipment cause another significant fire. Unlike fires in 2017 and 2018, which killed dozens of people, no one died in the Kincaid fire. PG&E said in a statement it looks forward to reviewing Cal Fire's report from its investigation into the cause and evidence from the blaze. For the California Report, I'm Lily Jamali. A federal judge in San Diego is set to issue a ruling on California's ban on private prisons. As KPBS reporter Max Rivlin-Nadler tells us, the ban includes immigration detention centers. Federal District Judge Janice Sammartino said on Thursday morning that she was prepared to allow most of California's ban on private prisons to continue. The bill, known as AB 32, banned all private prisons in the state, including immigrant detention facilities like the Otay Mesa Detention Center. The lawsuit was brought by the U.S. Department of Justice and the private detention company, the GEO Group. Nikki Marquez is an attorney with the Immigrant Legal Resource Center. She said that Judge Sammartino understood the aims of California's law. You know, the state of California, this law, AB 32, it is not about, you know, immigration enforcement. It's about protecting the health and the safety and the human lives of Californians that are in in detention. The judge did leave open the possibility that private facilities used by the U.S. Marshal Service could be allowed to continue to operate. She has yet to issue a formal ruling. For the California Report, I'm Max Rivlin-Nadler in San Diego. With coronavirus cases and hospitalizations spiking, the U.S. Armed Forces are providing assistance to California. Teams of military doctors, nurses, and healthcare specialists are deploying this week to eight California hospitals facing staff and equipment shortages. They include Lodi Memorial Hospital in San Joaquin County and Eisenhower Health in Riverside County. These hospitals have reportedly received 20 teams each of military 
military medical professionals. Earlier in the year, the Navy sent a hospital ship to the Port of Los Angeles to help treat non-COVID patients to relieve pressure on area hospitals. But personnel aboard the ship wound up treating relatively few patients over a six-week period. Meanwhile, nursing homes and assisted living facilities remain some of the hottest of hot spots when it comes to the spread of the coronavirus. So what's being done to protect the elderly and vulnerable? KCRW's Benjamin Gottlieb reports on that from Los Angeles. In the northern San Fernando Valley, right where the 5 and the 405 meet, is the Ararat Nursing Facility. It sits atop a 10.5-acre piece of property. It's well-landscaped, with deciduous trees, white buildings, red terracotta tile roofs. But that's about all you can see these days. If you don't live or work there right now, you can't go inside. Not today, not for a while. Now you can't actually come in and see your loved one and you don't know how, how they're doing. It's terrifying. Margarita Kachichian is the director of this care center, which caters primarily to the local Armenian community. With family visitations on hold right now, Kachichian says she and her staff have stepped in. So we're, you know, we filled in those shoes as the family members of the residents rather than, you know, our residents feeling the loss of their loved ones completely by being in the facility while everybody else is out. This is how it's been for months across nearly all of California. Nurses and staff helping with video calls, wheeling loved ones to windowsills to see their kids. And there's good reason. At one point, well over half of all deaths from COVID-19 in Los Angeles were residents and staff in places like assisted living and nursing homes. Like Jackie Saldana's father, Ricardo. He died of complications due to COVID-19 at Glenhaven Healthcare in Glendale. She's filed a lawsuit against the group alleging willful negligence, among some other charges. My dad didn't even know what hit him. You know, and, and he, he passed away alone without his family Glenn Haven did not respond to repeated requests for comments. But in court documents, attorneys representing Glenn Haven argue that federal law protects the company during a time of national emergency. Even so, Saldana's attorney, Scott Glovsky, says, if you look at what's happening now, it's clear that many should be held responsible. The nursing homes were forced, as a result of what's happened, of, of all the deaths, to actually be proactive and take appropriate measures to protect their residents. Apart from litigation, officials in Los Angeles want answers. They've asked the county's inspector general, who normally looks at things like abuses inside county jails, to investigate several nursing homes. For the California Reports, I'm Benjamin Gottlieb in Los Angeles. In related news, a new poll by the California Healthcare Foundation finds more than three quarters of the state's nursing home employees say they know a coworker who's had COVID-19 or are part of a staff with suspected cases. And these are workers who are likely vulnerable themselves, says Christoph Stremakis with CHCF. There was a study done that showed almost half of nursing home workers were living at or below 200% of the federal poverty level. These numbers are even starker in Los Angeles, where 90% of nursing home workers have had colleagues with confirmed or suspected cases of coronavirus. And these concerns are especially common with those who work in facilities with large numbers of Black or Latino residents.
The coronavirus has had a big effect on culture, shuttering live performance venues across California and creating big headaches for theaters, symphonies and opera companies. That includes the Long Beach Opera, which in recent years has gained a national reputation for staging productions that tackle contemporary issues like racism in the criminal justice system. So how is it and other California cultural institutions surviving the pandemic and trying to keep artists employed? I talked about that with Long Beach Opera's executive director, Jennifer Rivera. You know, the creative economy is so crippled by this, and especially the performing arts, which of course will be the last to come back in full force. But I believe as a creative organization, it is our number one job to figure out how to continue the creative economy. And, you know, I want to bring content and, and artistic fulfillment to audiences, but I also feel a really strong desire to care for the artists who are really suffering and struggling right now by figuring out ways to employ them even before we can have in-person performances. And what does that mean exactly? What have you done during the pandemic to keep your performers working and your opera company at least partially up and running? Right. Well, we created something called Artist Afternoons, which was um, artists who created their own shows from their living rooms, opera singers. Um, and we were doing that every day of the week. They were all paid. Um, so instead of in-person performances, people could tune in to these, I was calling them like opera singer talk shows, because they would, there was, you know, talking, they would interview people on Zoom, they obviously did live performances, um, they did some pre-recorded performances, collaborated with people virtually. I mean, is it a grand opera on stage with, you know, a chorus of 30 and an orchestra of 40? Obviously it's not, but it is still uh, the essence of live performance, of beautiful singing, of important conversations that are catalyzed by art which, you know, still fulfills our mission. It's just we're going in a different direction right now because we have to. And I guess the pandemic really underscores how so much art is created and performed by people working freelance, gig to gig, and how even in the best of times, people really have to hustle for the next job. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's incredibly difficult. I was personally, I was an opera singer. I was a professional opera singer for 20 years before I went into administration. So I have a real soft spot <laughs> for performers and I understand the hustle and that's exactly the word for it. The thing that's astounding about this situation is that, you know, even the most famous performers are completely out of work and, and having to collect unemployment, you know, performers who would never be without a job. I mean, obviously, there's many levels of performers and, you know, any kind of performing work is, is as you say, a hustle and requires constant vigilance to keep your career going. Um, but there are definitely people who would always be working somewhere and no one is working anywhere. And it's really, really devastating <laughs> for all of those performers. But, you know, the creativity that's coming out of it is sort of the silver lining. All right. Jennifer Rivera, Executive Director of the Long Beach Opera. Thanks so much. Thank you. And finally today, a preview of our sister show, The California Reports Weekly Magazine. This week, a look at the COVID-19 outbreak inside the state's prisons and how one man on the outside is acting as a lifeline for his former cellmates and friends in San Quentin State Prison. Anand Khan got life in prison but was freed after 16 years thanks to a new law that challenged his sentence. He says the state isn't doing enough to protect prisoners who are getting sick, and he's calling on Governor Newsom and prison officials to step up. Even when you're sentenced to life in prison like I was, you still treat people with humanity 
And the state and society should have a higher moral authority than the people that it condemns. Tune in to hear this week's California Report magazine or download the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And that's the California Report for Friday, July 17th, a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineers are Danny Bringer and Katie McMurrin. Our producers are Mary Franklin Harvin, Alice Wolfley, and Holly J. McDeed. Our intern is Nina Sparling, and our editor is Angela Corral. We're looking for listeners like you to participate in a short survey so we can better serve you. Help us by visiting kqed.org slash survey. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Thanks for listening and have a good weekend. Support for the California Report comes from California Earthquake Authority, a not-for-profit offering earthquake insurance to help Californians protect their financial futures. For more information, visit earthquakeauthority.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems, and the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles. The Snapchat Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snapchat Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them, with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast. And I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading!